Well, wonderful singing this morning. I hope that your hearts are encouraged and uh, ready for uh, the opportunity to worship now in the Word as we consider Advent. Um, Whenever we think about Advent, I wonder uh, the things that you wonder or ponder as you consider uh, the coming of our Lord and the way in which He did. Have you ever wondered about the timing of Jesus' incarnation? Why would it have been at that time that it happened? Why didn't God wait until technology was such as it is today uh, with the uh, internet and with um, even television and all of the ways in which our world is so uh, becoming smaller and uh, communication is so vast and so easy to get a hold of? Why didn't God wait to send the Messiah in a time like now. There's an interesting phrase in the book of Galatians that we're going to look at this morning uh, called the fullness of times. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're just going to be looking at verses 4 and 5 together. In particular, we'll read some of the verses surrounding those, but we'll see this phrase, the fullness of time there. Let me explain a little bit to you about the letter Paul had written to the Galatian church. The Galatian church was in danger of being deceived by a group of a group known as the Judaizers, a group that was insisting that they, the Galatians, needed to follow the old ways of Judaism in order to be fully in Christ. They were a group that was definitely preaching Jesus plus something is the way you are reconciled to God. The issue particularly for them was circumcision. They were known as the circumcision party. The sign of the covenant that God had given Abraham for uh, newborn baby males. The Judaizers were insisting that the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in order to be completely right with God. And the case that Paul is trying to make is that this is a false gospel. It had elements of true gospel in it, but it had an element of false gospel that was added to it. It is not the good news of Jesus Christ that he had preached to them. And he makes this very clear in the beginning of the book. Who has so quickly deceived you? If I or even any of my um, apostle uh, friends or an angel even comes to you and preaches something other than Christ crucified, they are to be anathemaed, to be condemned. And as Paul is explaining this to them and admonishing them to be careful to not believe this false gospel. He uses illustrations to help them see their faulty thinking uh, and, and to expose the reality of these false teachers. And one of those illustrations is what we look at together this morning as we consider the advent of the eternal Son of God. If you're able to, would you please stand with me just for a moment here as I read the scriptures aloud to you once again. I'm reading from the ESV as you follow along as I read aloud. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we Also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament preaching. May it be a um, blessing to us as we've heard it read aloud this morning as well. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we pray that as we study your word together this morning, that you would attend our time by the very Spirit, your Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, of whom we've already uh, talked about this morning in our Scripture reading, that for those of us who are in Christ, he dwells within us, and he can now open our eyes and our hearts uh, to these truths, and Lord, also convict us and comfort us by these truths that we might make application of them in our lives today. We praise you, Lord, this morning for your word. I pray that you would continue to humble me and get me out of the way. And Lord, we do think of our brothers and sisters who are unable to gather with us. and We know that there are reasons that they cannot. And so, Lord, we pray for them this morning as well. And uh, pray that for all of us, Lord, you would grow us in this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The illustration that Paul uses leading up to our text is most helpful in understanding the coming of Christ, the the birth of Christ. uh, Paul essentially distinguishes between the promise to Abraham and the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision in that promise, and the fulfillment of that promise and looking forward to the one who would fulfill it. It is an inheritance that is not brought about by the law, but that is brought about by Christ, and we'll see even as Christ fulfills and obeys that law perfectly. The law could not produce the inheritance of the spiritual blessing that were promised to Abraham. Only the seed, the Messiah, could do that. And so in chapter 3, just looking above from where we're studying today, just again to give a little more context to what we're about to look at together, Uh, Look up there with me and and look at these few verses. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith that would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ I'm sorry, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And and so we must understand this morning, uh, just by way of theological implication about the law, the law is not a a disservice. Um, It it exposes our sin. It's a guardian that leads us to Christ. And even for those Old Testament saints who had a, a, a shadow of the coming of Christ in their view, 
They must have uh, trusted in Christ, the coming of Christ, the coming Messiah, in order to be reconciled to God. But the law was there demanding every day sacrifice, demanding every day that, uh, that they would know that they fell short of that law. Until, Paul says here, uh, that faith comes. In other words, the fulfillment of that faith, Christ coming and fulfilling the law. And so we think about maybe the tripartite um, understanding of the law, that there is the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. And that moral law uh, extends from the garden to today, but it still reminds us that um, there is something that we, we, there is, there is something that we cannot fulfill that Christ must fulfill. And so even as we think about the Abrahamic covenant and uh, the idea of circumcision, that was a sign of the, that first covenant. But what does Jesus say when he is eating uh, the dinner with his men, the, the, the final supper before his crucifixion at the Passover? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so we know all of those sacrifices, all of those civil and ceremonial laws pointed forward to the time of, of the need of fulfillment, and certainly Christ filled, fulfilled the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. But here comes a group of people who says, you must follow the old covenant ceremonial law by having yourself circumcised in order to be made perfect with God. So, so Paul is trying to set up in these verses that we just read, to make sure that there is a distinction there. He uses language like the law being a guardian, and some translations say a tutor, which leads us to Christ. And we understand this. We all have had guardians, either, either parents or grandparents or, or others who have taken charge of our life. And we all have had tutors or teachers whose job it was to, either as a, a parent or a guardian, to raise us, or those who would teach us like parents or perhaps teachers in school, this is the picture that Paul gives. So in the fullness of time, we would be ready to live life as adults. And the point that Paul makes here is once the fullness has come, that is Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, we no longer need the guardian or the tutor in the sense of them bringing us to an understanding. And we've talked about the third use of the law before, that that is how we are to live our lives out because Christ has fulfilled it, but it doesn't earn anything for us. And if we are sons of God, then we are heirs. We are recipients of the same spiritual inheritance that was promised to Abraham. And how did Abraham receive that? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him right, as righteousness. Abraham had faith. Those who are true spiritual heirs of Abraham are those who are in the lineage of faith, of believing, of trusting God, of putting everything, our eternity, into, uh, as it were, hanging on Christ. And this is what he continues to explain in the text that we have read this morning. And so let me give you kind of the main point, and then we'll dig into these couple of verses together. The main point is this. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. For those of you who are watching from home, it is written in an email there for you. It's, it's been sent to you. God's perfect plan set forth before the foundation of the world was that Jesus would come at just the right time to redeem for himself a people unto God. Now this is sort of a, a point within a point, if you will, of what Paul is trying to, to get at. And so um, contextually, there's a lot more, and I've tried to cover those bases a little bit this morning for us. But we're, we're kind of um, 
we're kind of zooming in to this, this point that Paul is making uh, to uh, sort of expound this idea of the fullness of time and, and why it is that Christ came at the time that he did so that as we think about his advent, we understand God's perfect plan in bringing or sending his son to us. So God's perfect plan set forth before the foundation of the world was that Jesus would come at just the right time to redeem for himself a people unto God. And you might even say a note there if you want to add it is, by which we are received in adoption. Beautiful picture of the gospel. So I want us to see three truths that unfold God's plan in sending Jesus as the exclusive Savior. The exclusive Savior because circumcision or obedience to the law, even the moral law, could not save. The first truth, the first sort of unfolding of this is that the stage is set. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time Had come. Again, this phrase has to be understood in light of what Paul has been addressing with the Galatians. As we said, since they were being tempted to give into the uh, old ways of Judaism, Paul has been trying to illustrate the law as something different than what it pointed to the grace of God and Messiah. And here's where we see he is headed with the idea of children being heirs, as we read in the previous verses. The heir of the household, the child, is equivalent to the slave or the servant until the time that the father changes his status. At the time of adulthood, the exact scenario here is kind of difficult to nail down, but the point Paul is trying to make is well made. There is a certain time when one who is the heir of the inheritance moves from child into adulthood status, from the status of equal to servant into the status of the one who already, as an inheritance, owns everything. That's, what, that's the language he uses there. They, they are already in charge of these things. They're just not at the age where they can take charge of them. Paul then draws the parallel, stating that when we were children, supposing this to be the time before we are made heirs, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We could hear and maybe even obey in part the the law, but we were slaves to sin, and our attempts at seeking to obey any kind of mandate from God was futile because we cannot do enough to undo what Adam did in plunging us into the fall. But when the fullness of time came, at just the right time in history, God sent forth his son. What should we suppose constructs the fullness of time? It is hard to say from the context rather than looking at it from the perspective of of God the Father. Just as in the illustration, the Father knew the time for the heir to be made an adult. God the Father's plan would unfold in the way it did, precisely in the way that would bring him ultimate glory and his people ultimate good. We might see this in the government that existed at the time when Jesus was born. Uh, The time called the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome, which was, of course, no real peace at all, but the rule of an oppressive government. 
So when the eternal Son of God is sent forth from the Father and is born of a woman, the angels would say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We'll look at this a little more closely uh, next week in our our, uh, final message in Advent. But Luke chapter 2. Why is it that the angels proclaim peace on earth amongst those with whom God is pleased? Because this Pax Romana, this peace of Rome, is is no real peace. But here comes the one into the world who can reconcile man to God and ultimately man to man as well. So these angels come along as if to say, here is true peace, not the fake peace of an oppressive human government, but peace between God and man. It seems this would be a part of that fullness of time. Um, from the eternal perspective, as it were, and certainly looking back upon it from the, uh, as those who have um, lived afterwards, we could say that God doesn't get the timing wrong. This is the perfect time for Christ to come into the world. And also it could be said of the climate of Judaism at the time. You have a group of religious leaders who are promoting a Judaism that does not lead to a suffering servant as Messiah was shown to be in Isaiah 53 that we looked at a few weeks ago together, but one who would overcome that oppressive government according to that religious group's plan, not God's plan. So much so that when these Pharisees realize who Jesus is and that he did not come to do that, they plotted to kill him because they were what? Fearful, John 11 says, of losing their place with that very same oppressive government. It would seem that this has something to do with the fullness of time. In other words, the climate in Judaism was such that, hey, when Messiah comes, he's going to come and and conquer this oppressive government, so we will be uh, the ones who are ruling over the the, the land uh, again. But no, that is not why he came. But but the, the climate was hot for misunderstanding of why the Messiah would come and therefore would lead to them, the religious leaders and the government leaders placing him upon the cross. Some of this is seen in the elements that make up this sending. We see this language, God sent his son, looking again at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This, uh, of course, uh, nods to and, and gives reality to and a foundation to the deity of Christ. One of the elements that is important to our salvation is that Jesus is undeniably the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This element is is present here in the phrase, God sent His Son. And we have talked in the past about these eternal relations between Father, Son, and Spirit, and that uh, the Son uh, proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son. We call that the eternal um, uh, the eternal relations between the Godhead and that the sending of the Son is necessary to match what happens internally inside the, the, the Trinity. And I'm not trying to confuse you this morning, but, but this idea of sending is so important. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 states, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. Hear these words this morning in Hebrews 1 that reflect so much of this idea of God sending His Son, the exact imprint of His nature. Imagine this, dear ones, if you will. The, the very eternal Son of God, at the same time that He is in utero and, with Mary and, and then born into a feeding trough, at the very same time that He is in frail humanity as we sing about at Christmas time. He is in His deity still existing and upholding the universe. Amazing to think about. God sent His Son. God sent His Son born of a woman. We not only see the deity of Jesus and God sent His Son, but born of a woman, the humanity of Jesus. No one has been born of a woman who is not also truly human. The second necessity. Not only did we need a divine Savior, He needed to be human. Part of the plan of God was that His Son would take on human flesh in order that He might live His life essentially as a human being and in so doing, without sin, be the perfect sacrifice for humanity. In the incarnation, we've talked about this in the previous weeks, in the incarnation, we we understand that a truly human nature is united to the true divine nature. We call that in in theology the hypostatic union. When you're sitting around the Christmas tree and and, and talking about the the wonders of Christmas and the incarnation, uh, you can show off your theological knowledge and say, hey, let's talk about the hypostatic union. True divinity, eternal God puts on flesh, true humanity, born of a woman. Again, we, we, we turn to the book of Hebrews where this is flushed out so well for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. What? Partook of what things? Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Do you hear the echoes of of Galatians 4 here in in Hebrews chapter 2? Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Let's pause for a moment there and think about what does that mean in every respect? It means in every respect. Jesus is truly human. He truly lived and experienced life in his time on earth. His perhaps 33 years is what we, we guesstimate that to be. Truly as a human. He, he, he cried. He If he fell and and scraped his knee, he would bleed and and he would cry because it hurts. And and, and he got hungry and he got tired and and he understood what it it is to be tempted, though he never gave in to temptation. Therefore, he is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. He never sinned. Therefore, he had to be made made like his brothers in every respect. If his dad went on a trip... Away from the home. He missed his dad. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation. To be the one who receives the judgment that we deserve. An atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. He was born 
of a woman. Truly man. And yet we also remember he is the eternal son of God. Truly God. He was sent from God, born of a woman, and then born under the law. The time was right for Jesus to come because all the pieces of God's plan were coming together. Not that they wouldn't. But as we said, the climate of Judaism was right. The climate of the culture was right. The domination of Rome over Israel was right. Born under the law implies the nationality of Jesus in in one sense. To be born under the law was to be Jewish. Jesus was the long-foretold Jewish Messiah, the Lion of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Fulfilled. And this had direct application to the Galatians due to the Jewish rites that they're trying to be forced upon them. This is important for us and them in that Jesus fulfilled the righteous demands of the law which they and we could never do. And again, we think especially of the obligations of the civil and ceremonial law that so much pointed to the need of Messiah. Again, we hear from the author of Hebrews. He said, Jason, why didn't you just preach from Hebrews this morning? Well, I kind of am. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. In other words, uh, what happened in, in the temple day after day after day after day, hour after hour after hour after hour, there were sacrifices that were, uh, that were made. Listen to what he says as he goes on here. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Speaking of uh, that idea of Yom Kippur, the, the, the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the, the specific day, they, they had day after day sacrifices, but it all culminated in this one day where there was the Passover lamb. And then in uh, verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. What is part of that civil uh, and ceremonial, especially the ceremonial part of the law? It's the sacrifice of animals. For what purpose? We'll go back to the garden. What did God do to cover Adam and Eve's shame and nakedness? He apparently slaughtered some sort of an animal to give them skin to cover their shame and their nakedness, their, their sin, that which was exposed. And, and from that time forward, we see sacrifices used as an understanding of something must die because if it doesn't die, I'm going to die. It's a repeated thing day after day after day. And you have to understand, uh, the temple uh, had a fragrance of death. If you've ever been to any sort of a butcher or a place where you're you know you've, you've maybe killed a deer or or, or something in, in hunting and you, you go to that place what does it smell it stinks death smells then they would take that meat and barbecue it and that smelled pretty good but but what happened this priest stands daily you know oh is it is it time already you're coming to replace me okay I'm going to go down. There's another priest standing there ready for the next thing. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. 
the right hand of God. Why? Because it is finished. That's why. Homer Kent states of these descriptions, born of a woman and born under the law, depict the incarnation of Christ, showing the extent that the Son of God went in order to identify himself with mankind. And, and he had to be made flesh in order to be that sacrifice so that he could sit down at the right hand of the Father as the final sacrifice. This is the reason for our next point. The mission is clear. Look at the first part of verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. What did God send forth his son to do? To redeem those under the law. It's important to understand this connection with Jesus being under the law. We are under the law and are slaves to it because we cannot live up to its standard. Jesus was born under the law but was able to fulfill all the demands of the law and therefore is able to redeem us from under the slavery of the law. In what sense did they or we need to be redeemed? As we've already established, we were slaves to the law. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the law itself is holy, but sin through the law makes us realize we cannot get out from underneath the law on our own. The law is enslaving because it shows us our sin and the need for righteousness, and we groan for a solution. This is what it means to be under the law. The need for Jesus to come into the world, the eternal Son of God, born of a woman under the law, was that the law as our slave master demands of us that which we cannot pay. It shows us the holiness, the righteousness of God, and our utter lack of righteousness and the inability to approach God without death. Something or someone has to die. This is what the law states. There is no forgiveness of sin without blood being shed. Back to the book of Hebrews again. This is the righteousness of God over sin. God, who is the very definition of what is right and good, can and does demand that sin, our unrighteousness and violation of God's holiness, be paid for. We need to be purchased out from under the debt of law, again, something we could not do on our own. This is what redemption is. To redeem is to secure the deliverance of to buy those who are under the law. And this is why God sent forth His Son to deliver us, to purchase us from the slavery of the law and sin and death and make us slaves of righteousness. Listen, I I referenced Romans 6. Listen to what it says, Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. How? How? Because Christ redeemed us from under the law. And as much as that is encouraging and maybe unbelievable, and how much that that is true and completely blows us away, that our sins can be forgiven, that Christ gives us, imputes to us His righteousness. Therefore, we are able to live according to what God calls us to do, to love Him and to love neighbor as Jesus condenses the law into those two matters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. As much as we ought to glory and give uh, praise to God for the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness and holiness, therefore, us being able to Live out what he has called us to do. Can you believe this? It's even sweeter than that. 
It's even sweeter than that. We're not just slaves of righteousness, but as those who are under righteousness, we are sons. So thirdly, we see the rescue is sweet. The rescue is sweet. God doesn't just say, hey, I have, I have uh, redeemed you out from under the law. I have uh, forgiven your sins. I have uh, thrown your sins as far as the east is from the west to never hold them against you again. I, I have um, given you the p- perfect righteousness and holiness of my son. I have given you my Holy Spirit. He doesn't just stop there. No, the rescue is so much sweeter. The beauty of our salvation is not just a ticket out of hell theology. We are also received as sons and daughters by adoption. We are, by all of those things, brought into the family of God. Even as it says here, we, we, call, we cry out, Abba, Father. We are his, now his children. And, and I understand that that's a, a phrase that we use in our day and age. And people say, we're all children of God. Well, in one sense, in the sense that we are created in the image of God um, across every ethnicity, gender. H- however, uh, you want to talk about that. Yes, that is true. But the true children of God by faith is a totally different category. Only those who trust in Christ are adopted into the family. This is a family theology. We are saved. We are justified as individuals. We are adopted into a family where God is our Father. Jesus is said to be our brother. And we are affirmed to be His children by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As we saw in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, we are called brothers and sisters of Jesus. And this familial language is used in the Scripture to describe our relationship in the body of Christ with Paul and others calling us brothers and sisters. That's why we refer to one another in those terminologies. We are the body and we are to live life as such, as a body, as a family. And let me just add to this that that means across every ethnic boundary, If there's anywhere in the church where peace between God and men and peace between man and man should be seen, it is within the body of Christ. We are placed into God's family. We are placed into each other's lives. There's a lot continually going on in our world, an unrest in the area, division among ethnicities. Let it not be so among the body of Christ. We are adopted children from every tribe, tongue, and nation put into one family called the church. The thing that unites us is Christ. He shed His blood and He has given us His righteousness. This is to the glory of the Father. And He affirms this relationship with the family again. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We're adopted into the family. Now it has been said, I've, I've actually never verified this, it has been said that an adopted child is given the same inheritance as the firstborn. It makes sense in what we see here because Jesus is called the heir and we're called 
co-heirs with him properly. Therefore, dear ones, as we think about these things, this is the reason for the incarnation of Jesus. The reason for the advent. Look again at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you're here this morning and you wonder why all this is a big deal, why we make a big deal about this during Christmas time, do you understand now? Do you see what true believers in Christ know to be true? It is about peace. But it is about peace between God and men because if you are not right with God through Christ, you are not his adopted son or daughter, but an enemy of God is what God says you are. Jesus came as the eternal Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, to bring about reconciliation between Father, Son, and Spirit and man. The Trinity and man reconciled. Only then can we find peace. Lasting peace between one another as well. If you have any questions about that, I would implore you, I would plead with you to come and speak with me at the end of the service. Believer, are we living with this ever-present before us? Are we struggling and struggling with one another, struggling with remembering that we are at peace with God? How long has it been since you have really sat down and, and prayed and thanked God, cried out to God from your heart? How long has it been since you've reflected on and worshipped Jesus, because of his humility in the incarnation, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be for his advantage, but instead made himself of no reputation, taking on humanity and being found in a form was obedient, even to the point of dying a cross kind of death. Let this be our theme, believer. Let us shout it in the streets. Let us live it out every day with each other, and reach out to those who are not born again, to reach out and serve those who are needing to be served, and to be the family that God has called us to be as we seek to reach out to the lost and plead with them to trust Christ. Would you pray with me? Hebrews also says, Lord, that for the joy that was set before him, the Lord Jesus came and fulfilled the mission, endured the cross, so that he might be the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Lord, this morning we pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would rejoice, that we would find much joy in what you have done in giving us your righteousness, your holiness, forgiving us of our sins and adopting us into your family. Lord, may we reflect that as a local assembly. And then, Lord, we pray for those who have not trusted Christ that perhaps even today might be the day of salvation for them, that they would hear these things and for the first time your Spirit is drawing them and opening their eyes to the reality of their sin and their need of a perfect substitute to stand in their place who was truly God, who is truly God, truly man, and is able to 
by his substitutionary atonement, make them reconciled to you and adopt them into your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.